0: Hi, I'm Chris McBryan, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome.
1: And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 80, the greatest books of all time. <laughs>
0: Chris McBride here along with Yance Eaton and this is Pop Goes Your World. You know Yancey we mentioned on a previous show uh about how much we love to read and I thought one of the things that would be neat to explore is what some of our favorite books of all time are and I thought it'd be interesting to hear what a millennial's favorite books are what a Gen Xer's favorite books are so uh so if so if you're listening and you you love to read as much as we do boy you're going to enjoy this episode that's for sure but Yancey what's going on in your life my friend?
1: Uh, There's not a lot going on Um, just a typical work-life balance that I'm constantly struggling to find and uh, often failing miserably Uh, (laughs) That's just the way things go Um, I will say this. Okay, so the title of the podcast is like the greatest books of all time. Or yes. I, I actually, I forgot exactly what you said. Um, You know, just I, I know this kind of goes without saying. And yet here I am unnecessarily saying it. I've read maybe one one millionth of all the books are to read. Um, You know, I'd like to think that I'm a pretty voracious reader. But uh, obviously, like there's a lot of things that I haven't read. This is more so like books that have stuck with me, like through yeah. the, you know, through time or th- books that I've come back to are really changed my worldview a lot. Um, not necessarily like the most entertaining. Or not necessarily the best written books, but for me personally, the the, the books that I got the most out of, and I kind of wanted to like just throw that out there. That yes, I, I understand that like Pride and Prejudice or something is like very good, and I understand that War and Peace is very very good. But uh, you know, like I said, this kind of goes without saying. Everybody does their own thing. Uh, we have our own thing. We have some of the most like off, Eric book, you know, or not even book, but just taste in general. But I still wanted to say it. Like uh, this is this is a me thing. This is a Chris thing. So you guys can and just, uh, you know, hopefully you find something that uh, is kind of new to you.
0: Absolutely. And and I'm actually going to take the same approach as you are. Um, I wanted to go with books that, that just have stuck with me over the years. The only problem is I think they're all kind of chalky. So I'm probably going to get mm-hmm. accused of, you know, doing the textbook answers on this show. But they, these are books that, I don't know, they've stuck with me over over time. And, and I think they've stuck with a lot of people for good reason. because they are really, really good books, right? Um, before mm-hmm. we get started, though, into our books, I did want to mention, you know, one thing we like doing around he, uh, here, Yancey, is, is we like making friends. As you know, we like making lots of friends. And mm-hmm. I made some new friends recently, and I wanted to give them a shout out. So there's this podcast, and it's called the Gen X Grown Up podcast. And these guys, I'm telling you, it's kind of similar to what we do here. It's these yeah. three longtime friends. There's John, Moe, and George. And what they do is they look at, like like me, like us, like they look at, you know, uh, media and games and like tech, toys, comics, pop culture. But what they do is they look at all this stuff, both from their childhood and also from today, through the eyes of Gen Xers. All three of them are Gen Xers. So they'll look at stuff from the past. They'll look at stuff today. So whereas I've got you to balance me off here as the millennial, they're just three Gen Xers looking at all this stuff, new movies, old stuff. And mm-hmm. every other week they do what they call a backtrack show. And they pick like a single topic from their, their childhood, like, like Schoolhouse Rock. Do you know what Schoolhouse Rock is, Yancy?
1: Of course. I'm okay, just a bill.
0: Okay, very good. <laughs> very good. And uh, <laughs> like they'll do things like they'll pick like movie rental stores. I think you're you're still old enough to have rented movies at the movie rental store. I'm sure, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. so
0: they will do stuff like that. Talk about the Walkman or TV Guide or thing. They do a new show every Thursday, and uh but I just want to give them a shout out because I made friends with those guys, and they've got a really good pod. I really like it. So it's the Gen X Grown Up pod find it wherever you listen to podcasts and they also have a youtube channel as well where they have lots of gen x inspired stuff so that really you know hits home for me i like those guys so let me me ask you this question though
1: so they're they they're gen xers yeah and they talk about pop culture yep so basically what you're saying like these guys ripped off our podcast
0: yeah i guess you could say that (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: but they're obviously they're, obviously
1: they're, I'm joking. Yeah, obviously <laughs> we don't own the right to talk about you know, pop culture exclusively. Like that's you know everybody do what you want to do. If you guys want to start your own podcast, let me know. <laughs> you know, get at me and Chris. We'll listen to it if it's good. Hey, we'll, we'll even promote it on here too. Uh, uh, there's, there's there's I, always more room for another podcast. Yeah, I
0: think the difference is that they're actually really, really, really good. You know, and uh, okay,
1: so that's the the, the comparisons stop then. They, the, exactly,
0: they leave us in the dust when it comes to quality, no <laughs> question. <laughs> anyway, are you ready to get started? And uh, get... oh, another thing I wanted to mention before I do. Speaking of sure. Gen X, this just came to my mind. As speaking of Gen X pop culture, you know, I try to infuse as much Gen X pop culture into not just you, Yancy, but also into my two young boys. Because my sons are age nine and five. And my five-year-old mm-hmm. even says, nine to five, daddy, just like Dolly Parton. I'm not even kidding you. He says that to me. Very nice. It's awesome. Very nice. Anyway, so I, you know, I make them watch like Gen X movies and Gen X TV shows and music and all that. So anyway, um, the other day, my parents uh, come down for a visit. OK, they, they came to watch my five year old son play soccer. So they make the drive. It's like a three hour drive, you know, and we have a really nice visit. And then we all get in the van and we all head out to the soccer field to watch my youngest son play soccer for the night. And uh, so anyway, we set up all our chairs on the sidelines. There's like dozens and dozens of people there, like other kids and coaches and parents and grandparents, including my parents. Right. And mm-hmm. so out on the field, <laughs> there's all the kids they are playing. And there's my son, Sean. And he's running around playing soccer. And in the middle of the game, I kid you not, Yancey, middle of the game, it's kind of a quiet point in the game. So everybody on the field can hear it. My son belts out. I want to be sedated right in the middle of the field he starts singing, <laughs> starts singing the ramones i i'm not sure what to think like i'm happy he's been infused with the love of gen x you know the the staple right. from gen x the ramones it's great but i don't know if i'm like utterly embarrassed that he's out there singing a song about wanting to be sedated the other parents are laughing i, I don't know what to you think what, Chris, like, See, help I, me out.
1: I, I love the fact that that you do you obviously you spend a ton of time with your kids and like you're deeply involved in their interests, and you guys spend a lot of time together, and it's, it's awesome. Like, you... On- in all seriousness, you're like dad of the year. Like your kids always come first. They always do. We talk about them all the time. And I love that. I'm not taking anything away from that. I am a little concerned though. Like when these kids like get into like high school or something <laughs> I know. and there's just like this huge gap in like what they know about, you know what I mean? I know. Like, uh, you yeah. know, they get a little bit older and they realize like, I don't know what any of my peers yeah. are talking about. I don't watch those movies. I don't listen to that music. Like there's going to be like, there's going to be a reckoning at some point. I Hopefully think it right. comes a little bit yeah. sooner than later, but they're definitely in for a culture shock.
0: Oh boy. I tell you. Anyway, uh, let's get started, shall we? You and I have never been in the same room together. We've never physically met.
1: Nope. My wife, she has very little interest in going to Canada. That's my goal,
0: is to get you up to Canada at some point.
1: Chris and I will be hanging out in, you know, downtown Toronto. The millennial
0: generation, you know, is so much better than my generation. (laughs) Come on. I
1: I know this is heresy to a lot of people. It's 2018, and we literally
0: have to tell people not to eat Tide Pods. (laughs) Okay. So, um Yancey, we decided this week we talk about uh, books uh, and our favorite books. We'll do our top five uh, format like we normally do. I wanted to mention one thing, though. A couple of years ago, maybe about 10 years now, I set out to read as many, quote unquote, classic novels as I could because I realized that, you know, at this point in my life, I realized I hadn't read as many of those kind of, you know, mandatory kind of classic books as, you know, as you're supposed to read throughout your life, you know, you know, those ones, they make you read in like high school and stuff like that. And when, you know, or make you read when you're a kid and you don't want to read them. And so you don't read them. You just get the cliff notes, you know, and you fudge the assignment, you know, those kind of books. So Mm -hmm. I decided there, there had, there had to be a reason why so many of these books are considered classics. So I, what I did was I actually crafted a list and I set out to read them all. And you know what, Yancey, it was probably one of the best things I've ever done in my life from an arts perspective in my life. It was mm-hmm. phenomenal. I realized how many classic novels are out there that I never read. And I was so glad that I did that. Unfortunately, I'm going to be drawing from that list a lot uh, tonight because it is a little bit chalky, my, my list. But, uh, but before we get started, I also wanted to mention that there are some... That process was interesting for a couple of reasons. Like I say, number one, it introduced me to some literature that just is so, so good. And we'll get into it tonight. But I also realized that there are some really highly praised books that I actually didn't like. And I'll give you a couple of titles and you just tell me what you think. So so this one might surprise some people, but The Great Gatsby is considered, you know, one of the top five novels of all time, one of the top American novels of all time. And I Mm -hmm. did not like it. I didn't like it. I didn't like the characters. I didn't like the story. I just, I didn't like it. Another one is Heart of Darkness. And I know like it's like this great literary classic and they may, they basically, you know, based Apocalypse Now on that book. I didn't like it. I couldn't even get through it. I probably got through a couple chapters and I said, I'm done. And Mm -hmm. the other one that I think surprises people is Catch-22. Joseph Heller's Catch-22. Everybody loves the book. I hated
1: it. I hated it. You know what? As soon as you said that, I thought you were going to say Catcher in the Rye, uh, which oh, no. is oh, one no. of my go to oh, no. no, worst of good. all time American quote unquote classic novels. I despised The Catcher in the Rye. There really? was not a single part of it that, that I enjoyed at all. Yeah. Oh,
0: man. Because I was going to say, I have some honorable mentions before we get into our list. And that is definitely one of my honorable mentions. I thought The Catcher in the Run was great. <laughs> oh, see, I really liked it. It was, oh, I liked it. Um, a couple other honorable mentions before we get into the list uh, Crime and Punishment. Crime and Punishment is one of the most interesting books I ever read because it basically, you get through this whole novel and you realize, really, Nothing really happens like this whole book. Like nothing actually happens in this book other than there's a murder and then nothing else happens the rest of the book. And but it's still intriguing. Like It's just engrossing. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front is another book that just sucked me in, Um, of course, because they made it into a great movie. Jaws. I thought the novel Jaws was phenomenal. I mean, it's really hard to top the movie. And you know how much I love the movie. But the, the novel, Peter Benchley's Jaws is really good. It goes in different directions than the movie does. Um, Animal Farm is a, a book that I, I recommended to my wife not that long. Ago. i like, you have to read this. Um, another one based on a movie was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The, that book by Ken Kesey, it is outstanding. You saw the movie. Remember when we watched it uh, for the podcast? The book, though, is told right from the beginning from the point of view of Chief Bromden. Mm-hmm. So you know right away that he's not, you know, mute the way he kind of plays along, right? Right. Um, and then another one I mentioned is, this is going to sound crazy, because you think of it as a kid's book, but Charlotte's Web. And I don't know what it is about that book. There's there's something magical. So I always liked it as a kid. And then when my son, my oldest son, was probably about f- maybe six years old, I decided I would read that book to him. And just, mm-hmm. not, not to get all like, you know, mushy or whatever, I just wanted, but I don't think that you know this about me, but when I was 24, I lost my best friend. My best friend, my whole growing up in my life, at 24, he died suddenly. And mm-hmm. I don't know why, but reading Charlotte's Web to my son brought back memories. I don't know why the story about the spider, you know what I mean? But the, the, all the themes that are in it made me realize how important friendship is. And so then I realized, man, that book is a lot better than people even think. It's not just a kid's book. It's a book about true, true, deep friendship, which is amazing. So anyway, I just wanted to mention some honorable mentions. Did you have any honorable mentions you want to throw up before we get to your list or
1: Um, save it a bit till later? I have a few. Uh, One of the... the only times a person has ever gifted me a book in my life uh i mentioned sammy a lot sammy's my friend i love sammy uh he 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 sent me a book called ishmael and um it's basically about like a talking gorilla which is uh it sounds a little far fetched but um what it equates to is basically like uh breaking down uh the types of 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 people in the world um there's you know, you, you can basically choose to be kind of like a part of the problem or part of the solution. And what you choose as far as your place in the world and how you affect those around you and, the, and you know, basically the planet that we live on. It's it's a very pie in the sky kind of idealistic way of thinking about our place in the world. But um, it's a really, really powerful book. And I think about it a lot. It it almost made my top five, um, but I ended up keeping it out. That's one that I definitely wanted to put in there. Um, Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenitis. I don't know if you've read it. It won the Pulitzer a few years ago. That's an incredible, incredible book. Um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Rathman. It just basically talks about how bad human beings are at decision making, at um, extrapolating data, at, you know, deciphering, uh, you know, huge data sets or graphs or how we basically we allow our minds to um, partake in logical fallacies and, um, you know, you know, visual misinterpretations of what we actually see and and why, you know, witnesses are, are such bad you know pieces of evidence, all these different things that like um, it sounds like it's just a data book, but it's actually so much more. And it really teaches you how to think and how to process information a lot better. Um, I mean, I wasn't really I honestly I didn't write like a huge, um, you know, like honorable mention list, but I'm a huge uh, historical like I, I love biographies. I love reading about the past um, team of rivals uh, is it, it, it's about Lincoln and about like the cabinet that he put in place and uh, probably one of the better books I I think I've ever read, Snowball by uh, Warren Buffett or the autobi- autobiography about Warren Buffett. That was one of the most interesting books I read last year. I could go on for hours and hours and hours, but I think mostly what I enjoy reading the very most is the, the biographies, the autobiographies. And I just like seeing how people used to live and how they, you know, people who made a big impact in, in some form or another, whether it be, you know, politics or poetry or pop culture or anything like that. I like seeing, you know, what, what the effect was, how they got there, their decision making processes. Um, that's what I spend most of my time on is, is stuff like that. But um, like you, Chris, the last couple of years, I've really tried to devote a lot more time and in, in forcing myself to read the classics, especially fiction. I used to always kind of look down on fiction, thinking that um, it was it actually took less creativity to write fiction simply because, you know, there's no there's no limitations to what your mind can can conjure up. Um, but the more I, I, I learn about that, the more I realize that that's actually not true, because anybody can write fiction. That's true. But to write good fiction is actually incredibly, incredibly difficult. So your prose must be that much sharper and. Um, you know, the audience demands so much more knowing the fact that, you know, you have to make something seem realistic and you have to paint a picture and create a world where people believe it and and, and want to live in it and actually have some sort of emotional investment in character. So um, it's, it's weird, like the last two years, like I've done like this huge shift where I'm reading a lot more fiction and um, I, I think it's as a whole, I'm a lot more well-rounded and it does make me appreciate um, just how talented and just how difficult it is to write fiction. But that was a really long um, <laughs> like counter to your, your questions, but I guess I can go ahead and hop into the list. Well, you I, number I, before
0: five? we, before we get into your number five, I have a question for you then, cause you're bringing up an interesting point that I think I'd want to discuss. And that yeah. is fiction versus nonfiction. Because for me, my top five list are all fiction. Okay. And yeah. now, and now you're now you're making the wheels turn here, and making me think about nonfiction, like, mm-hmm. ooh, like, are there? And, and I'm trying to think, are there any nonfiction books that would even come close to cracking the top ten? And I can think of two off the top of my head. One is All the President's Men by Woodward and mm-hmm. Bernstein, and the other is In Cold Blood.
1: Okay. And I haven't read either. But.
0: By Truman Capote, and both are unbelievably good so i would think that they have a chance but for me that my top five are all fiction so i mean i'm interested to see what your list looks like so why don't we get started number five your number five favorite book of all time is go ahead and tell me
1: OK, um, one last aside on the last podcast when we actually recommended doing this and you said, let's do novels. and I'm like, well, let's just do our favorite books because I do read so much nonfiction. <laughs> you know, what right. I mean? it's like it was kind of like self-serving in that in that respect. But um, there is a little bit of fiction on here, but um, not all of it. Uh, so number five for me is... Uh, this is this is probably the chalkiest pick of the five that I'm going to give, and I, I I wanted to give some sort of homage to, um, you know, young Yancey Whenever I was literally reading a book a day, you mm-hmm. know, kind of thing. I, you know, my you know, all through elementary school, I was you know doing like the accelerated reader programs. I was just so obsessed with reading, you know, four or five hundred books a year, kind of thing. Um, there was one book that I constantly came back to, and I always thought it was interesting. Like looking back now, because it's not like this book; it is fiction. But it's not like it was really saying anything uh, from a cultural standpoint. It wasn't like it wasn't pushing some sort of societal agenda. It's not really trying to say anything very big. Um, and I don't really know how well the book has aged. Um, you know, obviously, there's multiple, multiple versions of it. But I just always loved it. And I, I probably read this book 30 times. Um, like I said, different versions and and, and you know, graphic, you know, uh, overlays on it and 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 special editions and all these things but it's the swiss family robinson and uh like i said i I know everybody's heard of it everybody's seen at least one version of the movie i think there's multiple movies out on it um this is uh (laughs) you know uh what what is like the if we made like a bingo card of our podcast you know there's of course there's going to be um there's going to be like you talking about canada there's me mentioning prince or tom petty and then you know there's there's gonna be all these little different things that we we bring in here all the time um one of the things that i i always mention is like i just like like things that make me think of my childhood and i like things that um like even if it's not the book itself that's talking or i can't relate to i like that it brings me back to a time when i was reading that and how that kind of relates to you know my life with the swiss family robinson for me it was just such a comfort read um you know it's i i would have take for granted the fact that everybody probably knows what it is But in case you didn't a swiss family basically gets shipwrecked and they live out their lives on an island and there's all kinds of crazy animals and it defies geography and it defies uh most of what modern science would say is possible as far as uh, you know the things that are that are on there um it, it does lean a little like a christian like orthodox christianity kind of thing like there's all well, there's a lot of lessons in like morality and acceptance and family cooperation and close ties with your family and stuff but um, I, I I love it because uh, that that's the point I was initially trying to make I used to always think that or I just hope that Pokemon were real when I was a kid The <laughs> other thing that I wish were real was Swiss Family Robinson I I love the idea of this happening to my family um, But my family, you know, we're not big travelers and you know, my parents, you know we're not getting on boats is basically what I'm saying. We don't fly. Nothing. This is never going to happen. But it's such a it's such a innocent book. It's such a just an interesting book that touches on you know natural history and animals and our interactions and physical science and not very historically accurate. You know, it's just like I said. Published in 1812. It was a really, really simple book at the time, um, but pure pleasure. Uh, I I grappled with putting Harry Potter on this list at top five. Mm -hmm. I should have mentioned the honorable mentions, but both of those two, I think, um, just from like a, a sheer number of times that I've read them. Uh, definitely like on the most read books of all time for me. So Swiss Family Robinson, a little long winded, but that's my number five.
0: Uh, a little while ago, my, both my boys went over to my grand, to my parents, to, to their grandparents' place for a little vacation <laughs> and they spent some time with them and then they came back and my parents said, said to me, oh, here, here's a DVD for you to play on the way home because we have like a DVD player that's in the backseat, right? Like, yeah. Here's a DVD to, for them to watch. They've watched it uh, three times already since they've been here and they want to watch it again. And it was Swiss Family Robinson. And I was like, like that 1960 movie with like, you know, Tommy Kirk and Kevin Corcoran. They're like, yeah, that one. And so this old movie, but my sons love that too. So it's not the book, but, uh, mm. but the movie. So that's a good it's one. Good. Okay, it's my, number, good. my number five, um, I'm going to go with The Grapes of Wrath uh, from John Steinbeck, obviously from 1939. This is an absolute American classic. You know, the thing is for me, there's several themes I would say that are present in, in American novels. But the one theme that I think is often overlooked is a theme that's explored in The Grapes of Wrath. And that's this. It's the the fact that Americans are not very nice to each other. And, and no offense, Yancey, I don't mean this in a bad way. But it's just, there, mm-hmm. there, there's an unbelievable amount of parochialism and tribalism in the American culture. And there's, in this book, like there's prejudice and there's bias, but, like all the bias against the Okies. I find it, it's a fascinating motif to me. Because on one hand, you've got, you know, people saying, Americans are are Americans, you know, like they're my fellow Americans and all that jazz. But in reality, you treat everyone like shit. And this, I think, Steinbeck drives this home at the end of the novel, because when, when the family come across the starving old man at the end, and there's you got the woman, Rosa Sharon, she just lost her baby, right? She has a stillborn baby, and what does she do? They find this starving old man to keep him from starving. These people are willing to help out their fellow American. So even when a large swath of the country doesn't care about them, which is powerful, powerful stuff. What does she do at the end of the the the, the book to the starving men? She nurses them to prevent them from starving. Like, that's oh, powerful. Wow, I was not expecting powerful, that. Powerful, <laughs> powerful stuff. And to me, it's a theme that I think doesn't get talked about near enough. You know this this idea of you know the parochialism and tribalism, like I say, and. It's an amazing novel to me. So it's number five on my list.
1: So uh, another book that I should have given an honorable mention to, I think I mentioned it a couple podcasts ago that I just read East of Eden, um, you know, obviously by the same author. Steinbeck is right it's the first book of his that i had read and then I, I promptly went out and purchased a whole bunch of his novels and um i just haven't got around to him yet but it's definitely on like my short list of of fiction that i do want to read um i know unfortunately just, i just ruined the ending for you <laughs> yeah i'm like holy cow thank-. you know what that Sorry. kind of reminds me of though chris have you ever have you ever read another book um that actually was a recent movie that was very good um have you ever read the road uh no no. no, have you seen the movie by chance? No it's like, kind of like a post apocalyptic type thing. No,
0: that sounds like um, it's right up your alley. <laughs>
1: yeah, a lot of the same themes are basically like the world has completely gone to hell, and uh, you know there's there's cannibalism and there's there's all kinds of like really really dark things going on. Basically, like in the entire world, there's almost no children whatsoever. They've all either been killed off or died or you know eaten anything like that. It's a really really dark premise, but same thing where uh, this little boy, his dad dies, and he thinks that he's basically going to wander the you know the earth for the next who knows how long or until he's killed or whatever. And same act of kindness where like another family that just happens to be passing by. Um, basically takes him in, you know, they have nothing to gain from that. It's literally just another mouth to feed. Um, but like at at some point there's always like that redemptive aspect of, you know, human beings where, you know, as long as we're alive, like we still have souls and, you know, given the opportunity, like people will still ultimately, I think, choose to do the right thing. Um, sometimes it takes a long time to get there, but it just made me think about that book, which is another, another good one. We could, we could do honorable mentions all night, Chris, that could be literally the entire show of honorable mentions. But, um,
0: so when you're number four, um, what do you got?
1: Uh, my number four, uh, I'm going to do one that is a, a pretty esoteric pick. Um, <laughs> so it's called The Elegant Universe. It's by Brian Greene, and it was published in 1999. Um, this basically is a physics book. It talks all about string and superstring theory. Um, and it, this was a finalist for uh, like the Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction. Um, it's had like a new release that came out a few years ago. Um, this is one of the, I don't know, one of the most succinct, just um, perfectly articulated, I don't want to say easy to understand because this isn't like the type of book that's a complete page burner um this this basically is like your introductory course uh to everything as it relates to quantum theory and uh just relativity and all, all types of like really really difficult theories about how uh gravity bends time and the dilemma of space and um <laughs> you know like just all, all types of unification theories between like i said quantum theory and uh, it it is a mind meld, like you would not believe. Um, I've probably read this book, I think, four times. And like I said, every single time, I understand things a little bit better. And you know, one, I think it was Einstein that said this, or maybe it wasn't. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> he basically said that, like, um, you know, if you cannot explain something in a very very simple way, you do not understand it well enough, right? For me to try to explain, you know, string theory and um, some of these like really really deep and you know super involved. Uh, concepts and and, and and different aspects of, of physics and, and and quantum theory is really really difficult and that's because i don't understand it like i should and i'm not claiming to um for me it's like it, it's purely i just want to learn about it and the more i learn the, the it, it just makes it opens up a whole new world for me brian green has like this really really uncanny ability to um slowly introduce you one little piece one little um you know something as simple as like uh, giving a real world example to explain something that is really, really complex and took you know decades and decades for the the world 's brightest scientists to explain something as simple as dropping a bowling ball on like a sheet that is being suspended you know uh, like if, if we 're all sitting around in a circle Chris and we 're holding a, a sheet and we drop a bowling ball in the middle and as that bowling ball starts swirling around in a circle and you can see how it just pulls down on the cloth you know as it 's pressing against this you can basically think of like that cloth or that sheet as time and so basically what it's saying is like you know the larger mass that an item that an object has this this bowling ball or you know this mass is basically distorting or bending time um, I know that sounds a little crazy, and you're looking at me like this is what he brought to the podcast. <laughs> this is absolutely <laughs> what I brought to the podcast. Nice. I'm not explaining it well, like I said, because I don't, I'm not claiming to to understand it like these guys do. Um, but for anybody who's ever even been remotely interested in string theory or multiple dimensions or the ultimate theory, the, the grand unifying theory of everything, or really just like to have like a more, um, a more, uh, comprehensive understanding of how the universe works this is a book where if you're patient with it you uh you give it everything you're not distracted you're not just reading to read it but really engaging with it stepping away thinking about like what themes are going through, revisiting chapters, you can really learn a lot about how the universe really works. Um, I haven't done a great job of explaining it, but just trust me, like I said, if you want like an introductory book that through the end, like you'll actually have a very, very good grasp on string theory, this is the book for you. Um, whenever I gift books, this is the book oftentimes that I will give them. And oftentimes I get a lot of really weird looks and I've even had one person return it to me, but. Incredible book, The Elegant Universe by Brian Greene. That's my number
0: four. Well, you'll have to gift one to me. Maybe send it up here to Canada. Um, my number four is a little bit more um, well known, I guess you might say. And it's uh, you know about <laughs> this the, book was a bestseller. Okay, yeah, no, it was I know. a best- uh, the, But I, I honestly I, I had not heard of it until you mentioned it. So <laughs> so there's that. Um, and this is also a fiction uh, work, and it's it, I'm going way back to 1851, and that's Herman Melville's Moby Dick, and the book is a bit of an uphill climb, and I think a lot of the criticism of this book has always been that it's its basically a long list of whale facts, right? But it's not. It's so much more than that. If it wasn't for Moby Dick, I don't think we would have ever gotten Quint from Jaws, okay? Um, this book is iconic in every sense of the word. The, you think about it. The whale's bigger than life. The chase is bigger than life. The obsession is bigger than life. Moby Dick is Awesome! I love this book. It kind of reads. It's funny because when you read it, it it kind of almost reads like like it's a difficult read. Like I say, it's an uphill climb, and, and I think the the, mm-hmm. the way that it's written is like kind of that almost sounds like old English. You know, thou dost go forth looking for the whale and all this. Like, well, what the hell is this, right? But when you get through all that and you kind of push through it, like it tells a story in an incredible way. And I, like I say, the whole thing is just it's iconic. It's just so iconic. And I remember reading mm-hmm. it and thinking, Oh my God, this is good and at the time I convinced one of my good buddies, You've got to read this book if you've never read it. And then he read it, he goes, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. It was dumb. And I'm like, Okay, fine. But so I'm not the only one that likes this book. It's obviously a classic for a reason, but I think it's just absolutely iconic and I really, really like this book a lot. So it's number four on my list.
1: You know what? I this is this is another one of the books where um one, one thing I'll always give my parents credit for is, um, you know, some of my siblings like to read. Some of them did not. And that's totally cool. And I'm not going to, like, shame them or anything like that. You know, to each his own. They they all had, like, amazing talents and were really good at other things. My whole family, at, you know, is musical and artistic and just really good at a lot of different things. You know, my thing was reading. And my mom and dad, like, if we had an parents fully pushed us and, like, like they really made sure that, like, we had the tools that we needed to to be whatever we want it to be. And so like uh, w- one thing my mom did was she bought a bunch of these classics and they were like the illustrated classics.
0: Oh, nice. <laughs> so,
1: so whenever I was a little kid, like, you know, this was like my introduction to to reading for pleasure was I had the Swiss family Robinson and I had, um, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea. And like, you know, obviously I had Moby Dick and I thought it was awesome. And then once you read the actual, the original version by Herman Mel- Melville, like you realize like, wow, this is this, there's actually a lot more to this book than, and when you talk about like a thematic standpoint like when i first obviously i read moby dick first and then i read um the great Gatsby in high school Mm -hmm. i had to as a requirement right and um I, i instantly thought i'm like wow i'm like in a lot of ways they are kind of the same book um you know just as far as like the 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 longing the yearning like that almost like that unattainable prize you know what i mean um there's like just from a thematic standpoint i know and there's there's many books that have that same kind of thing where like somebody wants something really bad they're going for it um but those two books it's interesting that you had mentioned uh both of those tonight like they they both kind of like made me think of each other so mm-hmm. um Moby Dick is awesome though and like you said like how many how many like under you know deep under the sea like mysterious monster books and movies and other forms of pop culture has it inspired like that was the OG like I love that you said that that like there literally would be no jaws if not for Moby Dick like that 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 is like the trendsetter for sure um what number are we on three number
0: three number three take it away
1: okay so number three for me Jared Diamond this is also non-fiction and it actually won the Pulitzer in what year was it I think 1997 or 1998 um, it's called Guns, Germs, and Steel: The Fates of Human Societies. Again, this is the type of book where it's not going to be a page burner. This one's a little bit thicker, um, several hundred pages. It is lots of uh, footnotes, lots. Of um, this is a scholarly work. This is somebody who worked as a professor at the University of California in Los Angeles, or you know, I, I could have just said UCLA. Um, he's you know, he's a tenured professor who has basically devoted his entire life to studying history and studying humanity. He's an archaeologist and Um, there's just a lot of things that this guy knows about. And those are the types of people where I, I, when I really genuinely want to learn something, I trust academics. And um, I know today in our political climate, Chris, not just in my country, but in yours as well, in worldwide actually, um, like there's oftentimes a demonization of people who might actually be in the know, um, just because they have conflicting viewpoints from you. Um, Anytime that happens, I always try to side with the people who have devoted their life to a particular field. because I feel like they have a, a, a much larger investment. They have more, and you know I just trust that I know where they're coming from. What makes this book so fantastic? It is like a history of the world kind of book. Um, it, it starts out super super, like the and the advent of humankind. And what is this book's main calling card? Is it basically tries to tell us why. Um, why countries in Europe and Asia are so much more advanced, or at one point were so much more advanced than many of the societies that we saw in Africa. So obviously during World War II, um, and you know even before that, there's always been rampant racism, and there's been like, you know like the eugenics movement, which set, you know, uh, which sent like you know equal, you know, you know human rights and. and of, of all of us as being like brothers and sisters and, you know, all of us being equal and created in God's image, it set that back 100, 200 years, right? The eugenics movement. What well, this book basically challenges is the fact that um, it, it gives actual scientific reasoning for, um, you know, why was it that whenever Europeans first came into Africa and, um, you know, like the sub-Saharan regions of the world why was it that these people were still so far behind as far as um you know civilization and agriculture and all these things and basically like it breaks down the facts that like um environmental differences things that were um it's to grow crops there because it's so much more difficult to acquire food and you're constantly being nomadic you can't establish societies you can't you can't build churches, you can't, you can't possibly produce enough food to where you can support people who are scholars, people who just study or people who, um, you know, learn things. And, uh, uh, you know, because of that, you can't really facilitate commerce. You can't have trade between different cultures. Like it was because solely because of their environment. And, you know, this is a cradle of civilization. This is where human beings started out. Those human beings that stayed there in this really, really particular climate, um, really, really struggled just to survive. And obviously, Chris, if, if, away all of the the, the comforts that you and I have in a Western society today, Um, take away our air conditioning, take away our agriculture, take away all those things, and you drop us in the middle of a desert with a thousand other people, we are going to struggle for a very, very long time. Um, like most of the books I've talked about tonight, this is a very long-winded um, explanation, but basically what this book does is it challenges everybody's notions that one type of race uh, or one type of people or one country or, you know, one one group of people is inherently smarter or they have more intellectual capability or they're more moral or they have some sort of genetic superiority to other people. This this basically challenges all of that in such a scientific and proven way. Um, it really changed how I think about the world. Uh, like. I, I can't say that enough, this sounds like I'm being hyperbolic, but this is like one of those most eye opening books where I would get through a chapter and I'd be like, oh my God, like that, that made that this is literally forcing me to reconcile the fact that I was like, I was harboring these thoughts in my head about this particular type of people or this person, whenever in fact they weren't true at all. And um, really, really eye opening. I can't recommend this enough. I mentioned, um, you know, I, I've mentioned books in the past, like the elegant universe, this is a book that like I would love to give somebody. I actually even have a, a, an extra copy of it. I'm just waiting for somebody to ask for it or you know for the opportunity to come up. But um, this is one of those books where like, if you genuinely want to learn, if you want to, like The Elegant Universe was about the universe, right? The origins of the universe and how all that stuff came to be uh, as far as like just, you know, everyday understanding of, of physics, whether you think that's creationism or you think that's just pure science, um, there's a place for both. And I personally think, you know, God is a scientist in every sense of the word, but this literally tells like the the state and the history of human mm-hmm. beings and uh, societies and, and everything. And once again, running super long, but it is a fantastic book by Jared Diamond. Please read it. That's my number three, Guns, Germs and Steel.
0: Oh, there you go. So um, as I mentioned, I, I went back and, you know, read all these like quote unquote classics and a lot of them are, you know, showing up in my top yeah. uh, uh, top five just because. Someone were so good. And I'm like, where was this book my whole life? And so one that I never ever read as a kid or you know, even as a young adult, I never read. And it wasn't until, like I say, I challenged myself, finds its way under number three on my list. And that's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I know I'm going way back because it was like published in 1831. But Victor Hugo's novel, oh my God, it's so good. Like, this is how you write a book, man. This is like telling an incredible story. And again, I'm all about that. Like, I really enjoy those themes, you know, like, as I mentioned, what the grapes are wrath And the theme that is just so prevalent in The Hunchback of Notre Dame is just how crazy Cruel people can be. Like, people are friggin' cruel. Like, and it doesn't matter when it was. Like, I say this was published in 1831, but it actually takes place uh, back in the 1400s, right? That's what it's set. Mm-hmm. And People are just so cruel. Like they're right from the get-go of this this novel, they're cruel to the Hunchback. by, you know, making fun of him during the the, the Fool's Day that the ceremony that they have, and then what goes on with Esmeralda, and then the the, the you know he can't have her, and then um, he gets upset that you know a Phoebus can't have her, and Frollo, so they so they get jealous, and they they have her hung, and the scene when she when Esmeralda is hiding in the wall, and the guards are coming through, and they're ripping away the bricks brick by brick and her mother is screaming. I I would I couldn't believe reading it. I was just it was just so vivid and so real and so visceral. It is so good. And then the other thing too is there's a whole chapter in the book about Paris. The whole chapter just describes Mm -hmm. Paris. You know, from one end of the city to the other. It talks about the whole thing. And 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 I remember reading it at the time and thinking Why is this whole chapter describing Paris like back in the 1400s? Like, what the heck is this? And then I realize Paris is a character in this book too it's a very very strong and 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 omnipresent character in the book as well the, oh my god this book is so so good and then i think in 96 they like there's been all kinds of adaptations uh, you know of this novel into uh, you know movies and stuff like that over the years and in 96 disney went ahead and said oh we're gonna make an animated movie of the hunchback i'm like what the hell are you doing why would you do it why would you make this movie into a disney cartoon like it's, it's the themes are not you know, something that I think, you know, kids need to, to, you know, need to be aware of at this point. Like I, the whole thing, it just seems like a mismatch there. So that one was not good, but, but the book itself, oh my God, it's so good. And then just the idea of, of love. And then at the end of the, of the book, i like, they hang Esmeralda and uh, the hunchback goes and throws Frollo off the top of the, the Notre Dame. And then he goes down to where she's buried and, and he, and he lays there with her and, and he dies starvation because he wants to be with her like it's the whole thing is just so oh my god that's how you write a book right there hunchback of mm-hmm. notre dame my number three love that book man it's good
1: so i think we're on my number one i think we messed up the number somewhere number two because sure? I, I talked about swiss family robinson yep i i talked about the alchemist okay i talked about guns germs and steel okay and i talked about the elegant universe right so that's four so i'm on number one now right
0: I guess so. I talked about yeah. what did I talked about The Grapes Wrath, <laughs> Moby Dick, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So I only did three. So how I don't about, know how we did this. I don't know. So, how about i do my number two and then we'll move on to our number one? How's that sound?
1: Let's do this. I don't know how we did that. I
0: think that's the first. But I don't know. Let's... It's all good. My number two, I'm going with again, I'm going way, 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 way back in time, all, all the way back to to 1818, and that's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. This book is so good. It, and it's not written like any other book because it's written in the form of letters. So it's like letters that are written. It's this person's letter to this person. And that's how the story unfolds. It was originally done as a bet. Like Mary Shelley got together with, with a couple of other authors and they had a bet who could write the, the scariest novel. And, uh, and And I think she won with, 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 with Frankenstein. And the thing with Frankenstein that I like so much is like it's just so iconic, obviously. Like it's just, it stood the test of time. But the, here's the thing. When I and, and Frankenstein, by the way, was one of the books that was on my list that I had to go and read. Like I'd never read it. And so I thought going into the book and I thought, what do I know about Frankenstein? Okay, let me think about this. Okay, well, there's a monster that's put together from corpses that are all sewn together, and it's got like lightning bolts in its neck, and then they use lightning to make it come to life. And then there's the scene with where he goes and he's like cruel to people and kills people, and like all the townspeople have like torches and quote none of that's in the book. None of it. And in fact, when you read the book, they never mention once that he's actually that the, 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 the Dr. Frankenstein makes his creature from dead bodies, never mentions it. He doesn't mention what he's making of. He just He's making a creature. And so you're like, wow, this is, where do they get this idea of digging up dead bodies and taking parts and putting them together? Doesn't happen in this book. And in fact, you know, I always think of Frankenstein's monster as being like this, you know, mindless killer, right? And in the book, it's not. It's a, it's a wonderfully gentle creature that likes to go out, and it, and it likes flowers, and it likes nature, and it befriends a young girl, and it's, the the creature's nice, <laughs> like, unlike some of the other books I've mentioned where everyone's cruel, and this book certainly has cruelty in it as well, but not from the monster, the monster's nice, all the monster wants is, is then he realizes that he's lonely, and he wants to have a companion,
1: and <laughs> likes like, so I mean... Isn't that so, that's so soul-crushing, that, I know. like, he's it, so pure and. In- in that sense. And, yeah. and
0: everybody thinks that it's a monster and he has to die. And because, you know, it's – and, and I, cause I remember he goes and hides the, – the monster hides by a cabin and looks into the cabin and, and sees people and then understands how they interact and understands how people are social with each other and, and what love is all about and what family is all about. That's all – that's what this book is about. And, and, you know, think of it as this awful horror story about this monster killing people. Not at all. Not at all. Oh, this book is mm. so, so good. So Frankenstein's my number two. So – now we can move on to uh, to your number one.
1: Okay, so again, my apologies. I don't know how we did that. I think I, I just know. did two books in a row. That's yeah, um, So number one for me is a little bit of an esoteric pick. I think um, it actually okay. won the Pulitzer Prize back in 2000, I think eight or 2009. Um, the book, I, I think it was 2009. The book came out in January 1st of 2009. It was he. Long story short, the author Paul Harding could not find anybody to pick up this book. Nobody wanted to publish it. It took him almost 10 years to write and it basically sat unprinted, unpublished in his office you know, desk drawer for years, he said, before anybody would actually pick it up. It ended up being uh, published by the Bellevue Literary Review. R- literary Review, it is a non-profit, um, which is like an extension of, I think, like uh, NYU, like one of their uh, medical departments or something, basically had like a literary press, and it was nonprofit. It was basically just to publish books that they thought would like be for the social good. Um, so it, it had like a really, really interesting pathway to actually getting in front of people and people reading it. Uh, the book is called Tinkers. Um, Tinkers is basically about uh, a character. His name is George Washington Crosby. And um, he is basically on his deathbed. He's an old man uh, who, his whole life, he's been a clock repairman. And uh, all throughout his home, he has just dozens and dozens of clocks hanging everywhere. Um, as he's dying, um, he's basically going in and out of consciousness and he is um, having hallucinations. Hallucinations and, and remembering things that had happened in his past, especially things that happened with him and his family and his dad. Um, what makes this book so, so powerful and so beautiful is um, because it took this author so long to write it, like I said, o- almost a decade of actual writing, um, the, the prose in this is just absolutely fantastic. It is less than 200 pages. It is a very, very short read, but this is one of those books where um, it is so emotionally jarring and the, the the pictures that he creates with this are so powerful that you, you stop a lot. <laughs> you have to stop a lot and just kind of think about things. Um, this is a man, like I said, who is on the brink of dying and he is looking back and thinking about all these different things. One of the most powerful scenes in the entire book is um, as he's, Drifting in and out of consciousness. Um, he basically imagines that the roof is falling in on him um, as he's laying there on his deathbed um, Through the roof is all these different things like these little mementos and um, you know figure pieces of You know knickknacks of, of things that have happened in his life And they they start summoning up all these memories and one of the most powerful scenes after that is he imagines whenever he was a child his father had epilepsy um, and Uh, he always kind of struggled with identifying with his father, with being close with him. There was one point where his father was having um, an epileptic attack, a seizure, and uh, he was, you know, throbbing around on the ground, like really violently. And his mom asked him to, you know, to to shove a a towel so that he wouldn't bite his tongue. And whenever he did that, his father bit his hand really, really badly and basically drew blood on him. And the boy runs away. Um, He runs away and, you know, all kinds of things happen where like, he's never able to reconcile the relationship between his father. Um, he struggles with connecting with his adult children. He struggles with all these different things. This is basically like, um, this is kind of like a, I'm trying to think of like a, a book that this would be familiar to, but it is a beautifully, just painfully emotional book about time and um, like how it plays on all these different metaphors with clocks and the ticking of time and the passing of time and how clocks keep stopping and then going. And he asks people to wind them up for him and, Um, basically him trying to find meaning in a life where he felt that, um, you know, he, his life lacked meaning and, uh, wondering if really he had done anything or contributed anything. Um, it's, it's really, like I said, it's a, it's a powerful book. It's really difficult to, to read. Um, but man, is it a beautiful book and the payoff at the end is so, so beautiful. It is one of the most powerful books. Um, every time I mention it to people, like I said, it did win a Pulitzer. Um, but an interesting backstory to this book, um, the original print like i said was less than 3500 copies and the author himself basically sold most of them like through word of mouth or he would give them to relatives and they would sell them for him nobody wanted to publish this book um whenever it was initially um named as a finalist for the pulitzer um he actually did a speech a couple of years ago where he talked about basically any book can be nominated for the pulitzer prize all it takes is you have to send three physical copies uh, i think it's cambridge university that actually you know, host the event and the and the prizes and stuff, you send three copies of the book plus $50 and you can be up for it. And this was the biggest upset. The New York Times didn't even review it. It was never a bestseller. This was one of the, the craziest underdog stories when it came to fiction, uh, act, like a book winning the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and like I said, the writing, the fact that this guy was so meticulous with it. And this was, I, I should have mentioned this at the top novel, Chris. This was the first time that this author had ever written a book and published it and it became basically like an unknown underground classic that was, you know, a in history as like a Pulitzer Prize winner. It's a beautiful book. Like I said, it um, the prose is amazing. It's not overly technical like, you know, The Elegant Universe or Guns, Germs, and Steel. It is just pure fiction, but it's absolutely beautiful. Everything about it is believable and it's, I mean, it's just a beautiful story about family and memories and time and um, it, it's just great. It's it's probably my favorite book of all time. Um, I've read it a few times. Could definitely read it again. If you dedicate a few hours in one day, you can go through it, and uh, I promise you won't be disappointed. It's absolutely amazing.
0: Nice. Well, I'm glad to hear that that's your favorite book of all time, as you mentioned, because that's why it's your number one. Uh, my number one is also my favorite book of all time, and 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 much like yours, it also uh, won a Pulitzer Prize. But mine was back in 1960. This is the only book, and and this is one of the criteria that I wanted to use uh, for this show. So. My number one book had to be something that was special, and this one certainly is. This is the only book that I've ever read in my entire life that when I got to the end, when I finished the last word of the book, my first gut instinct was I wanted to go back to the beginning and start reading it over again. That was my – and I, I've never had that feeling before at the end of a book ever. That's powerful. I, I I got done. I was
1: like, I just want to go back
0: and start reading it all over because I can't leave this world. It was just just so engrossing and that's To Kill a Mockingbird. And I know that a lot of people are like, oh, man, I had to read that when I was a kid. What's that? My God, is that a good book. It it has every it, it, again, the, 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 the themes that I mentioned earlier are there again in terms of cruelty and – and the the racism and it with Tom Robinson, and, and you realize like it was Mayella that came onto him. He didn't even do anything wrong, and he automatically is just you know arrested and thrown in jail and found guilty, even though he's totally innocent. And the characters in this book are just so unbelievably great. Atticus Finch, you want a hero? If you're you want you want your kids to to read a book and you want them to gravitate toward a hero. Have them read this book, and, and Atticus Finch is a hero, okay? This is unbelievably powerful, um, you know, just in terms of his character, you know, the fact that he, he's like—and I don't think they ever explain in the book, I'm trying to remember why he's a single parent. I don't really know why, but he's a single parent, but he stands up for what's right, for what he believes in, and he does it very, very quietly. He, he does everything by his actions, you know, by the way he handles himself, by the way he does And that's how he, you know, imparts this onto his children. And even the children, Gem and Scout are so good. And, you know, it's, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the the book, when Harper Lee wrote it, it's a, it's kind of based on her life, right? So she's kind of like Scout. Like, I've even heard that the, the character of Dill is basically Truman Capote, who she was friends with as a, as a child. It's everything about the book from, from, like I say, the trial, which most people remember the most about the book, but all the way down to the character of Boo Radley and how he's there to kind of protect her as well. This book, is phenomenal. Like it is phenomenal. And again, going back to that, the theme that I mentioned earlier about people being cruel to each other, but at the heart of it all, you know, there's this unwavering sort of devotion to justice that there is somewhere there's justice somewhere. There has to be justice. And I just, all those themes are all wrapped together. I just, to me, it was just the most, the most engrossing book I ever read in my entire life. And again, it was another Mm -hmm. one that was on that list. I never read it when I was a kid. Never read it when I was a teenager. Anything. I read it when I was an adult, when I put together my list. And I'm so glad I did because mm-hmm. it shot right to the top. It's my favorite book of all time. So,
1: you know, I, I, I did read it in high school, Chris. And, you know, I know, obviously, it's a movie. And I've never watched the movie just because um, the, the book mo- the is movie's
0: good. I mean, Gregory Peck is outstanding yeah. as Atticus Finch. But even um, uh, the actress, and it escapes me now, her name, because I don't think she did anything else. The, the, the girl that played Scout in it, she was great. Um, yeah. But Robert Duvall played uh, Boo Radley. So, I mean, so there's, mm-hmm. you know, some great actors in it. But uh, even even the, the, the actor that played Tom Robinson in the movie was so good. Oh, my God. It just – he just had the emotion. Oh, the whole thing is so good. Yeah, yeah I would recommend watching the movie if you can. But yeah, the book – so you read it as a, as, a, as, a, as a kid?
1: I read it as a – I read it in high school. Um, and and it was what, what, was like, what was your takeaway?
0: What was your takeaway from it when you read it?
1: I, I thought it was amazing. And, like, you were talking about um, as soon as the book ended, I, like – I go through this thing with really, really good books. Um, Like, I I get really, really invested in them. They become super important to me. And the more I get into a book, like, I literally shut every other part of my life out. Um, Maybe that's escapism. Maybe that's a character flaw of mine. But, like, I really become engrossed in these books. And, you know, that was a perfect example of it where I was so just. It was such a ride emotionally that, um, like I said, knowing that there was a movie out, I was so afraid of having that experience be ruined for me that I've, I've, I've kind of always stayed away from the movie. Um, you, we, we talked about in a past episode, um, like I talked about The Matrix, you know, p- there, there's another square on like our bingo card of Pop Goes Your World, me talking about The <laughs> Matrix um I hated that the sequels came out because I was so excited about them. I waited so long for them and they really took a lot away from the original. You know what I mean? Um so like I'm I'm always kind of scared of uh, when people revisit things or add on to sequels or or prequels or whatever um whenever it is so perfect um because I mean that literally is just it, it's such a classic, Chris. It's it's one of the best novels of all time and um man uh, one other thing I want to say before we wrap up this discussion is mm-hmm. Like I'll, I'll say this, you were talking about how as soon as you finish reading the book, you wanted to go back and immediately start reading it again. Right back to I page like one. Yep. 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 I get like that too. And also, uh, I'm curious if you have the same experience too, where um, especially like the you know the 30 minutes, the the hour immediately after I read it, there's almost like this this kind of mourning that goes because yes. you're, you go you're not in that world
0: like, anymore. Yep.
1: You're not in that world anymore, but also like you'll you'll know that you can never experience that that book. In the same sense again, nope. you know what I mean. Not You've been exposed to what yeah. happens to it, and um, it's it's really kind of sad. And uh, <laughs> I'm not saying like don't read books because like they're going to break your heart. You know, it's going to rip your heart out knowing that you can't experience that again. But um, it, it's just a cr- it, like it really is amazing to me. Um, just just what a good book can do, and and like how, how it can actually change your life. And um, you know, some of the books I've mentioned have have done that for me. Where as soon as I finish reading it, um, I realize that like, hey, you know, this sounds incredibly cliche and just you know. Very, very corny, but like I'll literally think like I'm I'm a different person now, Chris. I yep. think differently. Um, I know a little bit more about the world, and I'm more, I'm more susceptible to um, you know, being empathetic or seeing how other people think or how a, a different side of, you know, people are or you know, you know what I mean. Just learning more about people, and I, I think that that's probably my single favorite thing about reading. I I'm entertained when I read, but I also don't read for entertainment. I read because I want to learn. And um, I, I think the best books do that. They can they can trick you into learning or, you know, they, they can just be upfront about like, hey, you're going to learn something. But in reality, they're actually really, really entertaining, too. Um, I don't know how to wrap that up, but I don't know if you have any other closing thoughts. I out. would say like,
0: I would say two things. I would say, number one, that literature is is just the most unbelievable art form that there is. And, and going back to my, my choice of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, my number three pick. They bring up an interesting theme in that book, too, that I think is worth just mentioning here. And They talk about architecture. And in that book, they're talking about how architecture used to be the great art form, because before they had a printing press, how did you express art? Well, you did it through architecture. And that's how you left your mark on the world, was through great architecture. But now with the advent of the printing press, now people can do it through literature, and 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 so it changed from architecture to literature to be man's greatest vehicle, you know, uh, for artistic expression. And and I agree with it. Like I mean, there, there's nothing there's nothing like a book. There's no, and 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 it's interesting too. That's why like you know you always hear movies are never as good as the book. The movie's never as good as the book because I think when you read a book, you picture certain things a certain way. When I read um, Harper Lee's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, I I picture the house looks a certain way, you know, and the characters mm-hmm. look a certain way. And and then when you see the movie, it's like, well, that's the director's vision of what he saw in the book, and that's not mine, you know. So there's yeah. always that. Disconnect, but I think it's probably an interesting thing. Maybe on a future show, for us to um, have a topic of where we think because there's got to be examples where movies were better than the book. I can think of a couple off the top of my head, but we'll have to visit that at some point. What do you yeah,
1: think? Yeah, last la- last point just to touch on that. Um, my biggest pet peeve ever. Is whenever people talk about movies versus books and they say, oh, well, the book was better. I'm sorry, but of course it was better because there is no there is no production budget. There is no limitation on a person's imagination. Right. Right. The only the only thing holding you back is your your want and your knowledge and your you know, what I mean, how much time you put into it, how creative you are. There is no financial limitation or time constraint on a book versus a movie—that is the dumbest argument. And I hate to, to to like close this out on like a negative note, but like, oh my God, nothing irks me more than when people say that. Of course, the book is going to be better. You know what I mean? Of course, the the the, the original piece of art. Of course the adaptation that is a smaller lesser version and less creative version of that piece of art that rendition is not going to be better please stop saying that please that's it I'm done I don't know like
0: but but I do think that we could possibly explore the idea <laughs> of book of, of movies that are better than the, the book version of themselves. I, I, okay. I think I think we could do that at a future show. And the one thing that I'll leave you, want to leave it on more of a, a positive note. And this is a this is a millennial quote, and it's from George R. R. Martin, right, who wrote a song of Fire and Ice, which is Game of Thrones. He you know, we were talking about fiction versus nonfiction. He he has such a great quote. And it, it I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like he says like a man who reads uh a man who reads leads a thousand lives. A Man Who Doesn't Read Leads One. And it's just such an, I don't know, fiction is just, it's where it's at. I didn't have any nonfiction books, like I said, on mine. But anyway, uh, time now to move on, because we are now going to have some fun with Yancey. Okay, Yancey, so since we're talking about uh, great books and stuff, what I thought I would do is, because, you know, we like all kinds of different pop culture movies, books, the whole thing, and, well, you know, movies are, like, probably our favorite thing ever. So i tell you what I'm going to do. Very, very simple game I'm going to play with you tonight. It's 50-50, okay? It's it's easy. Okay. You're going to get them all. I'm going to name a movie, and all you got to do is tell me if it was based on a book or not. That's it. I name a movie, you tell me it's based on a book. Like, I say Jaws, you say yeah, it's based on a book by Peter Benchley, right? That's it. Okay. So you can handle this, right?
1: It, this seems simple enough, but as the listeners can attest to, <laughs> this is not going to go well for me.
0: <laughs> no, never, never. So it's really simple. Okay. So I'm going to give you a movie. Just tell me yes or no, if it's based on a book. 50-50. Okay. So 1980s, The Shining. Was The Shining based on a book? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, it was. It was based on Stephen King's 1977 novel. Very good. Okay, another easy one for you. One of your favorite movies of all time, 1993's Jurassic Park. Was Jurassic Park based on a book, yes or no?
1: I just finished a Michael Crichton book, and it is definitely based on a book. Yes, it was. Okay.
0: Uh, Sticking with the 90s, we'll go to 94. Pulp Fiction. Was Pulp Fiction based on a book, yes or no?
1: Um. The title would lead me to believe that it is. However, I'm going to say that it was not.
0: You are correct, Yancey. It was an original screenplay by Tarantino and Roger
1: Tarantino himself, yeah. There you go.
0: Okay, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from 2005. Was it based on a book? Yes or no?
1: Definitely based on a series of books, which I have read, so yes.
0: Yes, it was based on C.S. Lewis's 1950 book. Very good. Okay, 1996's Fargo. Was Fargo
1: based on a book or not? Oh, <laughs> this could really go both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm mm, I'm gonna say no.
0: Yeah, you are correct. It was based on original screenplay by the Coen brothers. Very good. Okay, now I'm going back to 1939, The Wizard of Oz, Yancey. Was The Wizard of Oz based on a book? Yes or no?
1: I'm gonna say yes. Yes, it was.
0: L. Frank Baum's 1900 book. Okay, uh, you are got to stay with the same year, 1939, to make it tough on you. Gone with the Wind. Was Gone with the Wind based on a book? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, it was. Margaret Mitchell's 1936 novel. Okay, I'm going to come into the millennial generation for you. I'm going to go all the way to 2004's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless
1: Mind. Based on a book? Yes or no? I've, oh man, I've even talked about this book as being like one of my favorites. Um, I'm gonna say no. You are correct. It was written for the screen
0: by Charlie Kaufman. Congratulations. The Princess Bride from 1987. We've covered that topic on the podcast before. Was The Princess Bride based on a book? Yes or no? Yes. Yes, it was based on William Goldman's 1973 novel. Congratulations. 1974. Roman Polanski film, Chinatown. Was Chinatown based on a book? Yes or no? Yes. No, it was not. It was a screenplay Ah, by Robert Towne. Yes, yes, (laughs) you did sweep. Oh, that's so good. Okay, um, we mentioned earlier Steven Spielberg's 1975 masterpiece, Jaws, was based on the Peter Benchley novel. But what about its sequel, Yancey? Jaws 2. Was Jaws 2 based on a book or not?
1: I'm going to say No.
0: Yeah, you are correct. It was a screenplay by Carl Gottlieb and Howard Sackler. And finally, 1988, Die Hard. Was Die Hard based on a book? Yes or no? <laughs> uh, 1988,
1: the year I was born. That's year of right. the Dragon. Um, Man, I don't know, Chris. I'm going to say yes.
0: Yes, it was based on 1979's Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. Congratulations. You got them all right except one. Very good. This is like a this is like this is a like huge good. for you this is like you never do this well on fun with the antsy so that one see it was a 50 50 i told you finally after 80 episodes i always say it's going to be <laughs> easy this week and you're like yeah whatever and then you know yeah, thanks
1: a lot yeah and
0: now this week it was so so you got that going for you um i also wanted to uh, mention that uh, i think on the next show we, we we've gotten some feedback you know over the years that we've been doing this podcast we've gotten some consistent feedback and that feedback is that it because because i'm a i'm a gen xer and i'm an older Gen Xer, right? So I love like 70s and 80s stuff. And because you're a millennial and you like sort of 2000 on, the mm-hmm. one area that kind of gets lost in the mix is the 90s. We, we, we tend to miss the 90s. We, we, both, we both experienced it, you know, and we both have lots of things that we love about the 90s, but it tends to get kind of like lost in the shuffle. So – some of the feedback that we get sometimes is that we need to, to focus on the '90s some more. So what I what I decided to do was I thought I would invite our good friend Caveman himself, Derek Myers, to come back on the show. He's going to come back on the next show with us, Yancey, and we're going to focus on the '90s. Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. We'll we'll talk about this when we get off the air. Whether or not we're going to do like '90s movies or '90s TV shows or '90s music, probably movies, knowing Caveman. But we'll we'll pick one of those kind of topics and we'll come back and we'll just have a free for all discussion about. All the things that we love about you know '90s, you know, um, whatever the the topic is. So, so what do you think about that? Obviously, you agree with the feedback. I mean, we we do kind of we do kind of neglect the '90s, don't you think?
1: Um, definitely the earlier part of the '90s. Like I, you know, I, I talk about '99 and then the early aughts a lot. But yeah, like you know, '90 90 to '96, '97 kind of like a huge blind spot on both of our parts i mean i think it has something to do with the fact that like i was like five years old but uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what i mean but like i definitely think like there's there's a lot of attic and troublesome pop culture that came out of the early 90s i'm not gonna lie uh a lot of that stuff did not age particularly well but then again we could say that about a lot of stuff in the 80s and the 70s too so i think it'll be fun to kind of (laughs) i think it'd be fun to revisit it and just kind of i don't know see where the conversation takes us yeah no i think
0: it's gonna be good so we'll have cavemen come on and join us like i say we'll 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 talk all about the 90s Uh, like i say we'll pick a topic in there, 90s movies or something like that and we'll talk about that um if you want to reach us on twitter you can always find us at c mcbryan or at yancey eaton and you can always go over to popgoesyourworld.com all of our information is there um yancey uh, it's always great to, to get get back in the studio here and talk to you. We, we take sometimes too much time between shows, but I really love getting together with you. It's always a lot of fun. And uh, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. You know, on, on behalf of Yancey, this is Chris McBrien saying thank you for taking the time to listen to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast continue the conversation on twitter at c mcbryan or at Yancey eaton please consider leaving a review for the podcast on itunes or wherever you download and listen to the show